0: This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au My name is Matt, uh, one of the pastors here at Anchor Church. It is great to see you here on uh, Good Friday. A warm welcome to everyone who is in the room and those who are watching online. If this is your first time with us, we are stoked that you're here. We really hope that you are blessed. We love having new people with us. Well, over the last couple of weeks, we've been in a series called Encounters with a King, and we've been walking in the shoes of individuals who have encountered Jesus and had their lives radically transformed. And over the two services over Easter weekend, again, we'll be walking in the shoes of two individuals. Today, we'll walk in the shoes of Barabbas, and then on Easter Sunday, Brad will help us walk in the shoes of Mary as she encounters Jesus in the garden. But let me pray for us, and our hope is, as we do that, that you yourself, wherever you're at on your spiritual journey, would encounter Jesus as well. So I'm going to pray that we would do just that this morning. Join me as I pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is good, and we thank you that we can celebrate Good Friday today. We pray that you would help us to see with fresh eyes this morning and understand again the cost that it took to set us free. Father God, we pray that you might lift our eyes beyond the busyness and chaos and craziness of our world and give us a moment to pause this Easter weekend and remember what you have done for us. We pray that you'd speak now through your word. You'd open our eyes by your spirit and transform us as we encounter you. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. And all of God's people said... Amen. Amen. Let me just fix this microphone, this stand up. I'm not sure if uh, if you're familiar with the Birmingham Six, but the Birmingham Six are six uh, Irish men who were convicted of a series of bombings, pub bombings in Birmingham. They were convicted uh, and sentenced to jail in 1975, all six of these men. And uh, after a series of retrials and a number of stories that were released through the media, it became very apparent that they were falsely accused and wrongly convicted of their crimes. In fact, what became evident was that the six, the Birmingham six, were physically tortured and their confessions literally beaten out of them. The evidence that was presented was falsified, and they indeed spent 16 years in prison for a crime they never committed. In fact, the uh, five of the six were on a train uh, to London the, just before the bombs even exploded. And it was a gross miscarriage of justice that occurred. Now, we read stories like, like this all the time. We are, are infuriated when we see the guilty being set free and the innocent being punished. Uh, our world was sent into uproar last year as a series of uh, brutal police attacks on African-American individuals sent our world into uh, global riots over the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Injustice. We hate it. It's unfair. And we have seen uh, a, a scene before us this morning of gross injustice, a scene where an innocent person is sentenced to death. And a clearly guilty convicted murderer is set free. I want to locate us briefly in the story of Easter. I want to rewind the tape a little bit to go further back in the story. To take you back to the Garden of Eden. As Jesus sat there preparing for what he knew would lie ahead. He called the disciples to pray with him. They struggled to stay awake. And Jesus prayed and he wept tears of blood as he begged the Father would remove this cup of, of, of judgment from him and prayed that profound prayer, yet not your will, my will, but yours be done. Moments later, Judas arrives with the Jewish chief priests and the temple guard and he betrays his friend, his rabbi, with a kiss. And the Jewish temple guard take Jesus and arrest him. They bring him before the Sanhedrin and they falsely accuse Jesus of what they call blasphemy. The high priest tears his robes and calls for Jesus to be sent to the Romans because the Romans are the only one who can issue a death penalty, a crucifixion. And so Jesus is taken to Pilate. All of these events occur at a very profound time in Israel's history. The moment that these events occur is what is known as the Passover, the Jewish Passover feast, the celebration where God's people would remember that moment where God brought them out of captivity, out of slavery in Egypt and set them free. The moment where the, the angel of death passed over all of the houses in Israel that had red blood of a lamb painted across the top of their doorposts. And Israel was remembering this moment. And it's in this moment, in this season of, of celebration, remembrance for God's people that this trial takes place. Pilate, uh, he lived outside of uh, Jerusalem, and he comes into Jerusalem at the time of Passover. It's a season of heightened uh, religiosity, and he comes, he's, he's a representative of Rome to bring peace and stability to the area. And so he comes into the center of Jerusalem, and he sits to offer judgments over cases that are arising. And also, there is this practice of a pardon that is Given, And he comes and he sits to hear a case of a teacher, a rabbi, called Jesus of Nazareth. The Jewish uh, high priest and the chief leaders, the teachers of the law, come with trumped-up charges against Jesus, accusing him of things, and their, their stories don't even line up, they don't corroborate. And, and Pilate says to Jesus, what do you make of these charges that are brought? And as we saw... Jesus stood silent. He didn't issue a defense. And it's a reminder to us that these events don't occur in a vacuum. They occur in a grand story that God has been telling since the beginning of time. It casts our memory back to Isaiah 53, where the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, utters these words. Speaking of the suffering servant, the one who would come, he says this. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And then a little further on down there in verse 9. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus was innocent. He had done no wrong. And yet he stands before his accusers, silent. Now, according to Roman law, if an accused did not offer a defense, they were automatically considered guilty. And Pilate knows this. He gives Jesus an opportunity to speak, he's he's trying to get out of it. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. His wife has already warned him. She's had a dream, she's been tormented. She says to her husband, Have nothing to do with this innocent individual. Don't be involved in his sentencing. And so Pilate, looking for a way out, seeks to leverage this moment, this custom that they had, of on celebration of Passover he would offer to the people to, to release one prisoner who was held in captivity. Now, if you're honest with, with if we're honest with ourselves, that's a weird custom, right? Just it's like, hey, um, Ivan Malat is in jail. Do, do you want to just set him free? I mean, you know, Martin Bryant will just let him go. It's it's a weird custom. And so Pilate sets up a choice for God's people. And in his mind, it's a simple choice. They have two individuals. He has Jesus, the innocent man, and then he brings out before them Barabbas, a notorious criminal. I've been watching on TV. Recently, I've been asking everyone this morning, because I don't know what the ad is about, but there's this ad on TV at the moment, uh, and it's about choices. This person walks into a, a costume shop, and if you know the ad, yell it out to me, because um, it's, it's killing me. I can't think of it. They walk into a costume shop, and they say, I want to hire a transformer outfit. And the lady who's at the costume shop says, oh, well, we've got this one here. And it's just like manky, shriveled, dirty, old children's-sized transformer suit. She says, that's the only one left, or we've got this one. And the camera pans this like, incredible like life-looking transformer shoot, suit. And it's like, and this light's shining on it, and smoke's coming out of it. And she's like, here's your choice. You can have this one or this one. And that's what part. Does anyone know the ad? Anyone? No one watches commercial TV anymore, apparently. <laughs> there you go. Uh, maybe I did dream it. Maybe I did. <laughs> But that's Pilate's intention here, right? He wants to give them a choice, which is really no choice at all. This is what he says. Have a look at verse 15. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known, notorious prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas? or Jesus, who is called the Messiah. These are the choices. Choice number one, Jesus Barabbas. He's a notorious or well-known prisoner, we're told here, in this account of the life of Jesus. But in the other versions of the gospel, we're told that he is a thief, and he is a murderer, and that he is an insurrectionist. Barabbas is literally a first century terrorist. He has sought to overthrow Rome, started with petty crime, started with small acts of terrorism. He's a murderer. He's a threat to public order and safety. He is a notorious criminal, probably the worst held in the prison at the time. And we notice there that his name is Jesus Barabbas, which is interesting, isn't it? Jesus was a very common name in the first century. I don't know if you know that. It's, it's, uh, it's like Joshua, right? Joshua is a very common name today. There wasn't just one Jesus in the first century. There were heaps of them. And so this guy has his first name as Jesus. But his second name is Barabbas. And that's also a very interesting name. It's an Aramaic term, and it means son of a father. Ba, son, Abba, father. So this is Jesus, son of a father. A very interesting parallel here between Barabbas and Jesus, who is called the Christ. This is choice number one for the people. Choice number two is Jesus, the Messiah. He was a teacher, a rabbi. He had never led a revolution. He didn't have an army. He didn't carry a weapon. He had never had a criminal record. He was not a threat to society. What were his crimes? Why was the crowd so angry? What had Jesus done? Well, he'd fed their hungry and he'd opened the eyes of their blind and he'd healed their lepers and he'd Uh, Made the lame walk, and he had cast demons out of the tormented, and he had opened the ears of those who were deaf, and he had elevated the status of women and children, and he had cared for the poor. These were the crimes, the so called crimes of the one who is called the Christ, the Messiah. And Pilate puts these two choices before the people. Clearly, one is innocent, and clearly, one is guilty. The choice should be simple. And in Pilate's mind, it's a no-brainer. He's thinking to himself, I'm going to get out of this. Jesus can go free. Surely Barabbas wouldn't be the one that they would pick. I get to look like the good guy, and we can go home and enjoy a good Passover feast with the family. How wrong he was. He says to the crowd, which one do you choose? Which one? Do you choose? Have a look at what it says in verse 22. Barabbas, they answered. Barabbas, what shall I do then with with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. And they answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Crucify him, as we heard. The crowd has been incited by the religious leaders of the day. They've stirred them up. I've always wondered how it is that the same crowd of people that just a few days earlier took their palm branches down and laid them as Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem and they cried out, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. And then here they are, the very same people yelling, crucify him. They've been stirred up. This is what is called herd mentality, mob mentality. And psychologists have dug to the ins and outs of herd mentality to figure out how it works. They've said there's a number of key factors that produce herd mentality. The first is anonymity, that an individual seeks to lose a bit of a sense of their individuality because they're a part of a crowd and they feel somewhat anonymous in a large group of people. The second is a diffusion of responsibility. I think, well, it's not just me. There's hundreds of people here. I might get away with this. Surely, we're all accountable for these actions. And then thirdly, they talk about uh, herd mentality makes certain behaviors acceptable because they start to see other people doing it. And we kind of saw that. In fact, one of the, um, the initial ideas of our drama was to have the whole audience participate in you guys yelling, crucify him, crucify him. But we thought that... The shock value was enough, the crowd here. You guys might not have felt comfortable with that. But that's how herd mentality works. Didn't we see this play out in front of our very eyes on the 6th of January this year as the Capitol building was stormed by a bunch of right-wing extremists calling for the president to remain? It's the same thing that happened that first Easter. An out-of-control crowd incited by the tweets of the religious leaders of the first century. Let's stir this up and incite this crowd to call for Barabbas. Well, Pilate, out of his own sense of self-interest, uh, seeks to shun responsibility. He washes his hands and he says, I am not responsible for this man's death. His blood be upon you. And the crowd, in this like ironic Phrase that Matt yelled out so well. says, his blood be upon us and our children. What an ironic phrase, is it not? Because that's in fact what the people needed, the blood of Jesus to be upon them. And in verse 26, in the most matter-of-fact terms you could possibly read, it says this. Then Pilate released Barabbas, set him free. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. You know, Barabbas was on death row for his crimes. He was waiting for the day, for the hour, when his moment would come. Where the prison guard would come and he would hear the keys rattle in his cell door and he would be dragged out before Pilate. And Pilate would issue the sentence... He knew what the sentence would be. The sentence would be death. And he would be handed over to the Roman executioners who would take him from the stone pavement called Gabartha all the way over to that hill called Golgotha and Barabbas would be crucified for his crimes. And on this good Friday, his day came. He heard the keys rattle in his cell door. The prison guards came and they grabbed him and they dragged him out before Pilate. And there this day stood another man another Jesus, another Jesus, son of the father. And Barabbas heard the crowd calling, crucify him, crucify him. And he thought, surely they're calling for me. And then in a weird exchange, the temple guard came and set Barabbas free and they grabbed Jesus and they dragged him off. And in that moment, Barabbas surely was thinking to himself, that should have been me. That should have been me. You've got to ask yourself the question, why is this story included in the gospel? It's in all four of the stories of the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four gospel accounts include this event, this story. It seems like a, an interruption in the narrative, in the Easter story. Why is it there? This story serves as a parable of what Jesus is about to do. It serves as an illustration, an example of what Jesus is about to do going to the cross and not just for one man, but for everyone. You know, in film and in literature, there's this device called identification and it's where a an author or a director wants their audience or their readers to associate themselves with the character in the story. We do it all the time, right? I watch The Bourne Identity or The Bourne Ultimatum or any of them, and I walk away thinking, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm like, I'm like uh, Jason Bourne, you know? I'm like walking around and I'm scanning everything. I'm like, Where's the closest gun? Where's my closest exit? That guy's a criminal. I'm ready to fight. You know, like. Uh, so we, we identify and associate with a character in the story. And that's what the gospel writers want us to do. They want us to see ourselves in Barabbas. This is a parable. It's a picture of what Jesus is about to do for everyone. It should have been me. I am Barabbas. You are Barabbas. When we look in the mirror, we see Barabbas staring back at us. It should have been me. You might think, oh, hang on a sec, preacher. Not too fast. If we're going to identify with anyone in the story here, I think I would prefer to identify with Jesus because I'm a good person. I've not murdered anyone. I'm not a thief. I'm not a terrorist. I'm a good person. I'm not Barabbas. Barabbas. But truth be told, we're all Barabbas. You and I alike. We are shackled by our sin and chained by our brokenness and in the prison cell of this world and its fallen state. We are rebels of the highest order who have rejected our God, our Creator, and our Maker. And we are spiritually incarcerated. Our spiritual reality is that we are no different to Barabbas. What is sin? It's a word that we don't like talking about anymore, but it's appropriate to talk about it on Good Friday. What is sin? Sin is simply living a life without reference to God. It's living a life as if God does not exist. It's, it's living in rebellion to our Creator and appointing ourselves as master of our own destiny, of master of our own lives, as, as Lord of our own lives. Sin is when we substitute ourselves for God. And Good Friday is when God substitutes himself for us. In a beautiful exchange. In a substitution that takes place. You see, the heart of Good Friday, of Easter, of the Christian message, is a substitution. It's the love of God manifest in the greatest sacrifice ever. That Jesus... Died in your place. That Jesus died in your place, in my place. I am Barabbas. And why did he do this? To set us free. To release us from the chains. To to set us free from the sin and brokenness that shackled our lives. He set us free on the 23rd of March in 2018, uh, an Islamic State terrorist walked into a super-use supermarket in the north of France, I believe, and began to shoot shoppers and store clerks. And he took hostages. And the first responder on the scene that day was an unarmed off-duty police officer by the name of Arnoux Baltram. And he negotiated a prisoner exchange, a hostage exchange with this terrorist. He was holding a woman and he said to him, I will step into her place and you can let her go. And he did this and by all accounts, he knew exactly what it would cost him. He actually turned his cell phone on and recorded the whole situation so that whatever occurred, the evidence was there and he was shot and stabbed four times and died. Put yourself in the shoes of that woman. She lives because he died. And we live because Jesus died. We are free because he went to the cross. He died in our place. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who knew no sin, innocent, perfect, spotless, to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, perfect, free. This is the good news of Good Friday that because Jesus died in our place, we are set free. I don't know where you stand this Easter, whether you would call yourself a follower of Jesus or not. But if you have never received the pardon that Jesus has on offer for you, then today is the perfect day to do that. Because what he offers you is a fresh start What He offers you is taking every single one of your sins, your mistakes, your brokenness, and He puts it upon Himself. And He gifts you His perfect righteousness to set you free. If you you have never done that, we want to encourage you to receive the pardon that God offers you this Easter. Perhaps you would say, yes, I, I am a Christian. I identify as a follower of Jesus. I want to encourage you, amidst the busyness of a A crazy season of life, of a packed social weekend, a time of family and chocolate and friends and whatever else is happening. To just pause and remember the cost. Remember that you stood shackled, bound. And that Jesus stepped into your place so that you could be free. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, a reminder of the sacrifice of Christ. On your chair, you'll have received the elements there, a cup of grape juice and a wafer. I invite you to prepare those now. On the night that Jesus hung out with his disciples, it was called the Last Supper. And um, it was the night that Judas betrayed him. And he'd taken bread and wine that was on the table. And he said to his disciples, this is a meal. When I'm, when I'm gone, you were to eat this meal in remembrance of me. He took the bread and he broke it and he, he gave thanks and he said, this bread represents my body, my body which will be broken for you. And he took the cup of wine and he said, this, this cup represents my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for your forgiveness and the forgiveness of many. And with these elements, with these symbols, we have a tangible reminder of what occurred on that Good Friday. And so I want to give you a moment to pause and reflect as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together and to position yourself in Barabbas' shoes, being set free while Jesus is taken on your behalf. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So brothers and sisters, I invite you to take this bread and eat it in remembrance that Christ's body was broken for you. And I invite you to take the cup that represents the blood of Jesus, his blood poured out for your forgiveness. Drink it and be thankful. I want to close our time this morning by praying, actually reading for you an ancient Puritan prayer that's a reminder of what it cost for our freedom to be purchased. So why don't you take a moment, close your eyes, Let me read this prayer over us. Blessed Lord Jesus, before your cross I kneel and see the heinousness of my sin, my iniquity that caused you to be made a curse, the evil that excites the severity of divine wrath, Show me the enormity of my guilt by the crown of thorns, the pierced hands and feet, the bruised body, the dying cries. Your blood is the blood of incarnate God. It's worth infinite. It's value beyond all thought. Infinite must be the evil and the guilt that demands such a price. Sin is my malady, my monster, my foe, my viper. Born in my birth, alive in my life, strong in my character, dominating my faculties, following me as a shadow, intermingling with my every thought, my chain that holds me captive in the empire of my soul. Sinner that I am, why should the sun give me light, the air supply breath. The earth bear my tread. Its fruits nourish me. Its creatures subverse my ends. Yet your compassions yearn over me. Your heart hastens to my rescue. Your love endured my curse. Your mercy bore my deserved stripes. Let my walk, let me walk humbly in the lowest depths of humiliation, bathed in your blood, tender of conscience, triumphing gloriously as an heir of salvation. God, we thank you this morning that you have set us free. We see the cost. We see ourselves in Barabbas. We thank you, Jesus. We worship you this morning. And we pray all this in Jesus' strong name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand to worship together, church.